I'm, I'm praying that the Spirit fills our hearts with so much wonder at the glory of the good news of the gospel and the privilege of partnering together to make that known. I'm praying that fires something in us as a church that we leave this room and we just start telling people. I mean right here, like right here in this city, like right there in the restaurant, right there in the coffee shop. We just start telling good news. Friends, that's why we have a letter like Philippians. Amen. Morning, church. So good to see all of you. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Philippians chapter 3, starting right there in verse 1 of chapter 3. So follow with me if you will. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evildoers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. I want to invite you to think with me here at the outset about a word, and the word is legalism. So if you grew up around the church, you're at least familiar with that word, you probably know that it's generally a bad thing, so it's something that we want to avoid, right? But sometimes we can, we can talk about legalism in ways that aren't necessarily biblically accurate. We can use loose terminology about, about what it is and not really properly define it. So I want to offer us a, a definition. Legalism is believing we can earn or keep God's favor by what we do. Let me say that again. Legalism is believing we can earn or keep God's favor by what we do. So it's it's looking to something other than Christ for acceptance with God. It's looking to something other than Jesus Christ to to feel clean in God's presence. That's why legalism is a bad thing, because it's self-atonement. It perceives itself to be making up for the shortfall of the cross of Christ, Jesus almost got us all the way there. It's just up to you and me to finish it off, right? So there's some significant contribution that we make to our own salvation, to our acceptance before God, and it's an it's a dangerous concept. And you see it actually in the Bible. You see people who carry this message around. And here's the thing, though: it's not just it's not just tucked away in the pages of of scripture, it's, it's here in our own hearts. We have instincts. We have legalistic, pharisaical reflexes in our own hearts. I love this statement from Dane Ortland. He says, Judaism is no more legalistic than any other religion so long as that religion is made up of humans. For the propensity to earn rather than receive God's favor is a human, not a Jewish problem. So to be sure, in the first century, the people who were carrying this message around were were sometimes called Judaizers, but it's not limited to to their time and place. It exists right here today. This passage, friends, attacks the root of legalism. 
So we need texts like this. It attacks not only the root, but it attacks the, the, the fruit, the, the side effects of legalism. So the guilt and the shame on one hand that we struggle with, the spiritual pride, the religious formalism that we see on the other hand. Philippians is here to drive that stuff out of the church. Philippians 3 is here to teach the church to breathe the, the good, clean air of free grace. That's why Philippians 3 is here, and so we need this passage. If we want to be a, a, an alive, vibrant, flourishing, life-giving church, we need texts like Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And so this passage tells us three things that happen when grace comes to church. Three things that happen when grace comes to church. When grace comes to church, number one, she brings joy with her. She brings joy with her. Look at verse one. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Joy guards the free grace of the gospel. It's a safeguard. Joy is, and I trust we've seen this along in this series up till now, that joy is one of the dominant themes of Paul's letter to the Philippian believers. It's, it's, a pri- it's one of the primary melody lines that's singing all the way throughout this entire letter. Joy and its synonyms, so joy, gladness, and rejoicing, appear 16 times. It's a very short letter 16 times, you just constantly hear this melody line of joy ringing out throughout the entire letter. A couple years ago, um, for our 20th anniversary, my wife and I traveled and we stayed for a few days in Asheville, North Carolina. We had never stayed there before. Beautiful place. And one of the days we spent most of the day at the Biltmore Estates. Some of you may have been there before and that's the Biltmore house, right? So I'm not necessarily putting in a bid on it while we were there, but that's the place, and it's, I think it's four acres inside the house, the equivalent of four acres inside the house. It's kind of America's Downton Abbey, and so we, uh, we walk through it, and so you'll put on headphones, and they tell you which room to start in, and as you walk into the room, it tells you this is the winter garden, or whatever whatever it is, and then it'll tell you all the things about the design features of the winter garden, then you'll go into the breakfast room, it'll tell you about the size of, the, the height of the ceiling, everything. It's just telling you this is that room, and this is what inspired the art and the architecture in that room. If you think of Paul's letter to the Philippians like a house, every room in the house is, is a joy room. As you walk in, Paul says, and this is the joy room. And then he walks into the next room, and it's also a joy room. Every room of this house is a joy room. So think about it this way. This this letter breaks up in five divisions, five sections. You might say five rooms. And just a quick tour, so flip into your Bible back to chapter 1. So we're walking into the first room of the tour in the Philippian house, right? And the first section is is basically a greeting room. The first 11 verses is Paul greeting the church. In one sense, it's a greeting room. In another sense, it's a joy room. Because look at verse 3. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer. And then you leave that room and you walk into the second, second room, which begins in verse 12, and runs through verse 18. And 
And there, it, it almost looks like that room is darker because Paul is talking about the fact that he's in prison. And Paul even says that some who are preaching the gospel preach it in a way so as to add affliction to my chains. They're trying to stack weight on me while I'm in here in prison. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound like a joy room. Paul says, actually, it is. Look at verse 18. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. And then we come into the third section right here in chapter 2. It runs all the way through chapter 2. And look how this third room opens up in verse 2. Paul says, make my joy complete as you unify around the gospel. And then he says, I want you to join me in rejoicing in verse 17 and 18. And then even in that very same chapter, I love the way that he finishes chapter 2. He says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you. You sent him to me and he has ministered to my needs, and now I'm sending him back to you in Philippi, and look, look how he wants them to receive him. Verse 28, therefore, welcome him in the Lord, how? With great joy, and hold people like him in honor. It's almost like Paul is saying, meet him at the airport. Get the banners out, get the balloons, scream as he comes down the escalator toward baggage claim, like just you're yelling, Epaphroditus, we love you, we honor you, thanks for going and representing us. In Rome, he wants them welcoming him home with great joy. Then you come into the fourth room in chapter 3. What does he say? He says, this is the joy room as well. Verse 1, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Right here at the beginning. And then he walks into one more room. There's only one room left in the house. And as you walk in, look at chapter 4, verse 1. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. And then three verses later, we come full circle because it started in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul said, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. And then he comes full circle in chapter 4 and he says, you, verse 4, rejoice always. And again, I say, rejoice. Every circumstance that he discusses in this letter, every room of the house, no matter what he's talking about in that room, becomes a joy room. It's, it's, it's connected to joy. Every believer is called to the ministry of rejoicing. Every believer is called to the ministry of rejoicing. He says, in addition, my brothers and sisters rejoice in the Lord. My brothers and sisters, there's not another kind of believer. That pretty much gets all of us. Brothers and sisters. So it's not just, you know, this, this joy is a personality thing. It's not just calling the good morning type people to, you know, do your thing. You know, do your rejoicing thing. No, it's everybody, brothers and sisters, we're all called to rejoice in the Lord. So when grace comes to church, she brings joy with her. Second, when grace comes to church, she locks the door behind her. She locks the door behind her. There's a security measure. So at the end of verse 1, Paul speaks of writing these things as a safeguard for you. And then in verse 2, Paul immediately transitions to warning them against the influence of legalism. You know, in, in Ancient times, especially in Hebrew culture, when you wanted to amplify something, when you wanted to underscore something, you would repeat it a second time. So truly, truly, I say to you, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So you'd say it twice and it would ratchet it up. But then every now and then, you would ratchet it up three times. And this was the ultimate superlative in ancient Hebrew writing. So you might say, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Paul ratchets this up to a code red. He says, look out, look out, look out. He ratchets it all the way up. Watch out, they're coming. Who? The legalists are coming. The dogs, the evildoers. He's warning them. So, so let's talk about legalism again, because not all legalism looks exactly the same way. There, there's more than one flavor of legalism. So, so three kinds of legalism. We'll just run through these very quickly. Number one, the entrance fee legalist. The entrance fee legalist. So this is the... This is the idea that you have to do something for God to get in. There's an entrance fee associated. If you want to experience God's acceptance, pay up here at the front, and then, and then you get in. Second, the extra mile legalist. So this is the legalist that adds commands that aren't in the Bible. Can't put a finger on the verse, but everybody's got to do this. It's not just me. It's not just wise for me given my struggle all of you get to obey this rule because we're the extra mile legalists. Number three, the membership dues legalist. So this is a slight variation on the entrance fee legalist. Entrance fee legalist said you have to do these good works to get in. This one says you have to do these good works to stay in. If you want to retain God's favor, then you need to work for it. You need to do these special things and then he keeps you in his good grace. Again, if we're honest, we struggle with these tendencies. Every Christian in this room has an inner Pharisee. We have this legalist in the heart that rises up and expresses itself in some of these ways. Just as a quick example, if when I was going through those three different kinds of legalists, you were thinking of other people, guess what? <laughs> right? Your Pharisee is showing. It's, it's peeking through. We just saw it for just a second there when I, when I was a little kid. I started a club. It was a very exclusive club uh, in my church. And, um, and so we, had, we were training to be spies. So this is like, this is circa 1982. I'm six, I'm seven, seven years old. And we're training to be spies. And so I started this and I, I taught them karate because I had seen Karate Kid. And so I started with the crane. I mean, where else do you start? So I just started with the crane. It's like, okay, well, We'll do that. And then so we, we, we learned karate. And I don't know what the connection is, but we, I taught them break dancing. So I have no idea what the connection is between those two things. But karate and break dancing, and then like how to stealthily get into a room, right? And so in our, in our church building, there was a, on the first floor in the lobby, there was a little door with a vent on it. And yeah, it, so it looked like that. And that door led upstairs to the spy training facility, which is also known as a Sunday school classroom. And so you go up that thing. But when I saw that slat, and I was in a Christian bookstore with my mom, and you know how when you're checking out in the Christian bookstore, they'll have all those little ditties that you're just supposed to buy. It's, 50, it's only 50 cents, right? And, and I saw these little uh, cards with scripture verses on them and prayer, you know, that you could pray or that you could memorize. And they were laminated and my mind went to that grating on there, and I thought, that'll be our access card for the spy training facility. It's perfect. So I bought 50 cents, and I bought three of them for my friends, and I said, so we're going to have a meeting after church in the facility, and so go ahead and bring this card. 
I'll be on the inside of that door, and you just kind of knock, and then I'll knock back, and then you'll slide this card through, and then I'll open the unlocked door, uh, <laughs> and unlockable, by the way, it had no lock on it, <laughs> but this is just, it's a foolproof security system for us to, to talk together as young spies. You think about this in light of, of Philippians and in light of the New Testament. So Paul gets really, really interested when he starts to see what teachers ask for when it comes to obtaining entrance into the grace of God. And he leans in and he says, hey, what did you ask them to present? What did they slide through the vent? Because it didn't look like they slid through the vent faith in Jesus alone. It looked like you made them slide through a surgical procedure called circumcision and obedience to Old Testament rituals. Surely that's not what was written on the card because that's not how people get in. That's not the access code for salvation. What is it? Paul tells you in Romans chapter five, verse two. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So he says you want into grace, you want into the acceptance of God, you come through him by faith, that's the only access card that works. There's no mention of circumcision, no mention of adherence to Old Testament laws. We obtain access into this grace in which we stand through Jesus by faith. You want to see Paul go commando on people in the New Testament. You watch what happens when he sees them slide something through other than faith in Jesus Christ. He gets really upset. And the reason he has to repeat this warning and ratchet it up to the third degree is because he knows two things. It's in your notes. The first one is this. Legalism spreads. Legalism spreads. The, the circumcision party, sometimes called the Judaizers, they, in Acts chapter 15, they travel all the way from Judea to Antioch to tell these people you'd need a different access card to get into the grace of God. Here's what they said, Acts 15, 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, here's what they said, unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. It's almost as though these teachers are saying, you have one of these? This is, this is the only way in. You need one of these. This was, this was prescribed by Moses himself. And so they come down from, from Judea to Antioch, and, and they're, they're saying, look, we're here to teach you Gentiles to spell the most important name in the Bible. And it's as though the Gentiles say, Paul already taught us how to spell Jesus. And he says, I'm not talking about Jesus, I'm talking about Moses. It's not J-E-S-U-S, -S, it's M-O-S-E-S. -S. You guys don't know that name? You, you have to know that name. Apart from Moses and his life-changing magical procedure, you cannot be saved. That's what they say. So legalism travels. That's why Paul is raising the flag of urgency. He knows legalism travels. In that particular case, in Acts 15, it traveled roughly 300 miles to tell these people what it takes to get in to the grace of God. Another reason for the urgency of this warning is Paul knows, number two, false teaching never wears a name tag doesn't walk in and say, we're just here to hijack the grace of God into works. It's not that. It's like, it's not we're card-carrying legalists. So Paul 
He wants to define the terms. He wants to give the correct labels of what actually happens when you listen to these teachers. So he says, watch out for the dogs. Paul is using intentional irony here. This, these are fighting words. Because dogs in the ancient world were unclean. They were things that just kind of roamed around and they were scavengers. And the Judaizers, that crew of teachers, legalistic teachers, they thought of the uncircumcised Gentiles as dogs. And so when Paul says, watch out for the dogs, and he's referencing those religious elite, he's clarifying the gospel. He's clarifying that the one who trusts in Jesus is clean. And the one who trusts in anything else isn't. The one who trusts in anything else is duped into thinking he or she is clean, but they're actually not. So he's pointing out false teaching by using these labels, and he's spinning them in the opposite direction. They thought of themselves as the good works people. And Paul says, no, they're actually evil workers. They're evil workers. He calls them the bad works people because when you steal spotlight from the sufficiency of Christ's finished work, we can't call that a good thing. So he says these are evildoers. And then they called themselves, in other places in the New Testament, they called themselves the circumcision, which was a metaphor for the ones who were set apart, the clean ones, the holy ones, God's special ones, the circumcision. Paul says, I've got a different name for them. Let's call them, and literally in Greek it's the mutilation. Why? Because Paul has seen the damage that their teaching has been doing. Churches founded on grace becoming sweatshops for newly converted Gentiles trying to work their way into God's good grace. Friends, Christianity is the only religion on earth that tells you you can be fully and eternally accepted by a holy God because of what someone else did for you in your place. Christianity is not about what we do. Christianity is about what Jesus Christ has done. That's how we preserve the gospel. We, we lock and bolt the door around that reality. When Grace comes to church, she brings joy with her. When Grace comes to church, she locks the door behind her. And third, when Grace comes to church, she starts the church singing. She starts the church singing. In other words, in verse 3, Paul is clarifying what worship is. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision. We've been set apart. He said, that's you, Jews and Gentiles who've trusted in Jesus in Philippi. You're the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Paul is clarifying, this is what worship is. Old Testament circumcision, it was an outward ritual. It didn't ever purify the heart. It symbolized the purity of soul and heart that God intended for his people, but it didn't effectuate that. It didn't, it didn't cause that. Matter of fact, the Old Testament prophets were the one who said that. They said there's a day that's coming. There's a day in the future when the Holy Spirit will be poured out on the church and he will set his people apart. 
in a unique way, there will be a definitive act by which his people become holy, and that will change everything. Look, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant isn't that the new covenant has no law. There are no commands. No, there are commands all over the new covenant, all over the New Testament. It's not that there are no commands. The difference has to do with with location and motivation. You think about where was the Old Testament law? It was on the wall. It was scratched in stone. Where is the law in the new covenant? It's written on the heart. It's inscribed in the heart of the believer. That's that moment that the Old Testament prophets were saying, that's going to come. He's going to take it off. The law is going to come off the wall and it's going to move into the heart. The Holy Spirit is going to take control. It's what Jeremiah was talking about. Under divine inspiration, God says this. God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And then the Lord goes on to say through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes. That was the big day. That's why Pentecost is the turning point in history. Spirit moves in. Everything can change now. The law is in the heart. Paul is saying, like all other Old Testament ceremonies, physical circumcision in the Old Testament was waiting for something else. It was gesturing in the direction of a more decisive, sanctifying event, a definitive action by which God's new covenant people would be set apart as a special people forever. And that new and better definitive act was God's people receiving his spirit. The indwelling presence and power of the spirit. This is in your notes. The spirit gives life to the church. The spirit gives life to the church. So when the Holy Spirit falls on God's people, falls on the church at Pentecost, the, the husk of outward acts of obedience, that husk breaks off and we got a new situation. The church breathes in, breathes deeply the, the clean air of free grace. Now, we don't live anymore. We don't live for the glory of God because Moses threatened us and he thundered from Mount Sinai. We live for the glory of God as new covenant believers because we want to. It's in, the law is in the heart. doesn't mean we'll perfectly pull it off, but we desire to. We want to. We want to be fully pleasing to him. So when grace comes to church, there's life. There's transformation from the inside. It's not cleaning the outside of the cup. It happens from the inside. There's joy. It, the community of faith isn't a greenhouse for spiritual pride. We're not impressed with ourselves. That's what happens when grace comes to church. Speaking of church cultures, so I read Philippians a lot this week, obviously, for just preparing for this. I read it a lot just in one sitting, just going over it and reading it. Uh, not writing anything down, just reading it. And then I also read Galatians in one sitting, just reading it and not making any notes. And something stood out to me I hadn't noticed before. So out of curiosity, I, I did a word count because it seemed like these groups of words kept popping up as I was reading those two different respective letters. And I noticed something interesting when I did a word count. I'm going to read the words as they appear in each different letter. So we'll start with the grace-driven church of Philippi. Here are the words that occur more than any others 
in order. Joy, I rejoice, I will rejoice. Joy, my joy, I am glad, rejoice. Be glad, rejoice, rejoice, great joy, rejoice, my joy, rejoice, rejoice, I rejoiced. Get the feel? That that's the atmosphere of one church. 16 occurrences of this little family, threefold family of words, joy, gladness, rejoice. There's another threefold family of words, though, that shows up in Galatians. This is a church that is grace starved. What's it sound like? 15 occurrences, almost the exact same number corresponding to Philippians. Here are the words. Enslave, slave, slave, slavery, slave, enslaved, enslaved, slave, slave, slavery, slavery, slave, 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 slavery. Which church do you want to attend? (laughs) What happens when grace comes to church and when legalist is barred at the door? That the difference is in the tone, the atmosphere, what happens. That The first is a grace-saturated church. The second is a grace-starved church. In other words, when grace comes to church, she brings joy with her. When legalism comes to church, she brings oppression. Grace brings a DJ. Legalism brings leg irons. That's the story that's in those books of Galatians and Philippians. The choice is obvious, Right? I hope the choice is obvious. The Holy Spirit comes to church with grace, and what does he bring? Life, freedom, rejoicing, gladness. He gets the church singing. Ephesians 5, verse 19, we find out it's the Holy Spirit that makes the church sing. Here's what it says. Be filled by the Spirit. What happens next? So if we're filled by the Spirit, what happens next? Here's what the Spirit does. We start speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything. In other words, when the Spirit is present, the people sing. The people give thanks. Paul says that that's the the key ingredient in verse 3. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. Next point, when the Spirit is present, we boast in Christ, not ourselves. We boast in Christ, not ourselves. Verse 3, we worship by the Spirit of God. What's that mean? It means we start boasting in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. The relationship between worshiping by the Spirit and not boasting except in Christ alone, that also shouldn't surprise us in light of the fact that Jesus said, I'm gonna go and it's actually gonna get better. I know that's impossible to believe, but I'm gonna send the Spirit and here's what's gonna happen. John 15, 26. When the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So the Spirit comes and suddenly we start singing the glory of Christ because he's testifying about how great Jesus is. What happens when Jesus says, I'm about to ascend, I'm gonna leave, Acts chapter one, Holy Spirit's gonna be poured out on you, he's gonna come upon you, and what will happen? You will be my witnesses, Jesus witnesses. You'll start talking about what I've done in my living and dying and rising. Spirit's gonna fill you, you'll start talking about Jesus. Look, when the Spirit moves into the heart, 
We worship Jesus. We boast in Jesus. We tell people about Jesus. When grace comes to church, we're not impressed with ourselves. We're impressed with Jesus. It's not about us. It's about him. We don't have spiritual swagger. We don't strut. We're not the hero of the story. We've not contributed something awesome to our salvation. He's done it all. He gets all the glory. I love this statement from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, grace eliminates boasting. It suffocates boasting. It silences any and all negotiations about our contribution before they can even begin. By definition, we cannot qualify for grace in any way, by any means, or through any action. Thus, it's understanding God's grace, that is to say, understanding God himself, that demolishes legalism. Grace highlights legalism's bankruptcy and shows it's not only useless, it's pointless. As Paul's saying, we have no confidence in the flesh in here. None. You want to see evidence that the Spirit is working? Listen to the worship of God's people. Listen to what God's people boast in. Look where they're leaning. Where is their confidence in? So how do we take this home? Three brief points of sort of summary and application for us, very briefly. Number one, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I love that word, rejoice. It's not a feeling, it's an activity. Right? Scripture doesn't command you here, feel giddy, feel uh, ecstatic and enthusiastic. It's not a feeling word, it's an activity word. Rejoice. And notice it says, rejoice in the Lord. How clarifying is that? The Bible doesn't force you as a Christian to mouth the words, I love experiencing chronic depression. There, you say it, right? Mouth, I know, I know you don't believe it, but I want you just to say it because that's how you rejoice in the Lord. You say, let's say it after me. I love panic attacks. Panic attacks are fun. No, that, that's, that's not what the New Testament's calling us to do when it calls us to rejoice. It says rejoice in the Lord, you can rejoice in the Lord from a prison cell in Rome. How do you rejoice in the Lord? It, you call to mind these immovable, soul-steadying realities of the gospel. We are his. We are forgiven. He is with us. He will never leave us. One day we'll see him. It will all be worth it. His promises are true. Every one of them will obtain. Every one of them will be fulfilled. Those are things you can say from a Roman prison cell. They're still true in a Roman prison cell. Only Christians can say, he is with us when all hell is broken loose in our lives. Only Christians can say, I trust you, Lord, when the doctors say there's nothing else that we can do. Which is to say, only Christians can rejoice in the Lord. That's what this means. Second, live on his word. Live on his word. So this is related to the previous. And let me put an edge on it by saying it this way. A sense of deep joy in God is not promised us apart from abiding in his word. It doesn't just come willy-nilly. 
it's not promised us apart from abiding in the word. So just look at Psalm 119. Look at this psalm as just clinging to the promises of the word of God in the ashes of suffering. Here's what it says in verse 25. My life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. Verse 28, I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Verse 114, you are my shelter and my shield. I put my hope in your word. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry out for help. I put my hope in your word. What is this believer doing? She's digging her fingers into the word of God and holding on for dear life, saying, this is what holds me. This is my hope and stay. May your promises keep me in their grip. Look, you keep God's word closed. You skip biblical fellowship. You spend the waking hours of your day listening to every voice but the voice of God's word. That's a regiment designed to produce discouragement. We have to have his word. We live on his word. It is bread. It is food. It is water. For our souls, live by his word. And third, hold the gospel high in word and welcome. Hold the gospel high in word and in welcome. We have this distinctive as a church. We welcome graciously. It's a value. It's, it's part of who we are. What, what's it mean? It means Brook Hill's can't feel like Galatians. It better not feel like Galatians. We can't be low on joy and high on demands, high on performance. We can't be proficient in morality and suspicious of mercy. That can't be us or we're headed toward Galatia and away from joy that we see in Philippi. Look, good news shapes not only the beliefs of the church, but the ethos, the environment, the attitude of the church. What's, what's that mean? It means if we do this thing right, this, this church thing right, when we leave each other's fellowship, it shouldn't look like we just had a root canal. <laughs> right? If you bump into a, a coworker at lunch today, they shouldn't say, dude, what happened to you? Did you get mugged? Like, what happened? No, I was just at church. <laughs> because we like to leave one another's presence feeling generally unhappy and beat up. You should come sometime, right? <laughs> so that's the kind of church we are called to be. We, we come here and we look up and we look out. We boast in what Christ has fully accomplished, atoning for our sins in his body on the cross. We, we, we boast in his glorious grace that he's rescued us, the mess of sinner that I am. And we gather around that truth every single Sunday. Look, let, let's, be, let's be real. If... Think about our own sin and just face up to it. If the worst thing that you ever thought about was posted up on the screen with your name attached to it, you'd want to run out of this room as fast as you can. And I'd try to beat you out because if my words were up on the screen, I'd feel the same exact way. It'd be a race to see who can get out of the room the fastest because we're bathed in shame over the things that we've done and thought, our actions. When grace comes to church, she washes that away. She goes to work on guilt and shame. She tells you good news. She says, hey, hey, somebody came and took that away. You have no business carrying that. He came to take that stuff off of you. Rejoice. Be glad. There's good news. 
And by the way, you can confess the worst of it in gospel community, and hopefully nobody will be shocked because nobody here knows better what sin is like than you yourself. You know it from the inside, right? We say that kind of stuff every week. If we say that stuff every week in this church, we won't have enough seats for the desperate people in this city right next to us at the office and in the neighborhood who are so needing to hear Jesus say, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? You come to me. I'll take you. That's we welcome graciously. All who are weary, I have rest for your soul. You just come to me. God wants us, Brook Hills, to enjoy the clean air of free grace. It, it, and it's not a grace that indulges us. It's a grace that transforms us.